This ethics podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas Yosef ben Yamin ben Avram Chaim, Mr. George Topaz, whose third yard site falls out on the 19th of Sivan. That's the day that this podcast is being released. This was an incredible person. He was born in Warsaw in 1924. So he was just a young teenager when the war started and he underwent the horrors and the tragedy of war. He was the only survivor of his family. Only 48 hours after the liberation, he joined the American army, and he went on to build an incredible life. A leader in his community, an advocate of the state of Israel, and someone who was always growing and working on his character and refining himself. He also published his memoirs, the Holocaust memoirs, in a book titled The Iron Furnace, And there's also an incredible four-hour-plus video that you could see online that he did with the Shoah Foundation, where he tells over a story. And you could see he was a very refined person, and he is sorely missed. And we are dedicating this podcast in his memory and for the elevation of his soul. May his soul be elevated in heaven. We are up to chapter 6, and we're still in Mishnah number 6. This is the famed 48 Ways to Wisdom, and we're up to way number 20. Bemut Sicha, with limited Sicha, which means conversation, talking, or chit-chat. Of course, as humans, we are verbose, we like to chat, we like to be loquacious, and we like to talk. That's effectively what we are. We are talking beings, as we know. And the talk can be productive talk. It could be edifying talk. It could be, of course, sinful talk. There are many, many mitzvos that relate to sins of the speech. And then there's all this gray area in the middle. Idle chit-chat. You just speak about things. And it's not necessarily a mitzvah. You can't really say it's a mitzvah or it doesn't immediately appear to be a mitzvah, and it doesn't seem to be a sin. It's just conversation, small talk. A way to acquire wisdom, we're told, is with a little bit, with limited small talk, limited chit-chat. A bit, as we said, with all these ways that are a little bit. A little bit is necessary. It's actually helpful, but not too much. Now, of course, there is conversation that's a mitzvah. You know, the study of Torah, we're, we're told, you're not supposed to just scan the Torah with your eyes. When you read, you're supposed to enunciate it. You're supposed to say it out loud. In fact, one of the ways to remember our Torah study is to make sure that we do it out loud. And that's a mitzvah, and that should not be limited. And prayer, we also do that mitzvah, a central pillar of our religious and spiritual life. And that's also done with speech. And we also must enunciate our prayer. And that too should not be limited. Now, there's other sorts of speech that should be eliminated entirely. Lashon hara, evil talk. It's one of the worst sins, as we know. Any talk that's demeaning, insulting to others, that hurtful, is hurtful for others, that reduces or diminishes or makes other people feel bad. 
And he taught that is gossip that can potentially lead to any sort of bad behavior. That must be eliminated entirely. But chatting, that should be limited, but not eliminated entirely. Evidently, speaking with others, conversing with others, chatting with others, it's valuable in small, moderate doses. Not too much and not too little. Not a monk who takes a vow of silence and not a blabbermouth who can't stop talking. Now, I always think that maybe one of the biggest discrepancies between how we view things and how the Torah views things is the power of words. We think of words as, you know, it's just words. It's not real. You know, actions matter. Actions speak louder than words. Talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? The Torah tells us that the essence of humanity and the differentiation between humans and animals is that we have the capacity to use verbal speech, verbal articulation. This is what makes us a human. In fact, there is the very famous comment or translation of the Unculus, when the mighty infused in the nostrils of man the soul of life, man became a living being. That is translated as man became a speaking being. Animals can make noise. Animals can communicate. But humanity, we articulate. We can express nuanced ideas via words. And it's almost like our intelligence is captured in language. And the limits of your language, it's almost the limits of your ideas. If you cannot find the right way to capture it, to codify, give an idea with a word, that idea is almost not part of your world. Moreover, man, we always say, is a hybrid. We got a body, we got a soul. And the body's tangible, the body we can see, the body we can interface with via our senses. But the soul, it's kind of mystical. It's kind of hard to define. And we cannot interface with the soul with our senses. Speech is a fusion of body and soul. On one hand, you use your body to speak. You use your tongue and your throat and your lips and your teeth to speak. But what you choose to say is the part of your mind. And what happens with those words? Where are words? How do I say? I can't see the words. It's hard to capture them. Words is just a thing. It has this intangible quality that makes it similar to like a soul. And thus, words are, are the mirror, so to speak, of humanity. It's, it, it too is a hybrid. It too is a fusion of body and soul. And thus we can say that that is the human. The human is the, the fusion, the touch point of body and soul. And that is manifested in man in our verbal speech. When body and soul are fused, of course, we know the Talmud that tells us that the angel comes and smacks the baby on the mouth. And the Torah is forgotten and the orientation of, of man 
is settled. The mouth, that's going to be the touch point. And that's where the fusion, so to speak, happens. That's where the body meets the soul. If you want to evaluate a person, all you need to do is look at their speech. You can judge a person by their speech. We don't believe that words are meaningless. Our sages tell us that every person is accorded a finite amount of words. And when you exhaust all your words, you're done. And the sages tell us that there are angels that are dedicated to the transcription and meticulously chronicling every word. And that's why we're told many lessons about this, to use our words sparingly, use them judiciously, use them wisely. The Talmud tells us that Lashon Ra, which is evil talk, where we deploy our words for bad, it's one of the worst sins in the world. In fact, according to at least one statement, it's worse than the three cardinal sins. Words can be very destructive. But words can also be very constructive. Like we said, you know, prayer, Torah study, many mitzvos are done with words. Words can even transform the world in a material way. We know there are mitzvos that are created via human speech. If I say this animal is a sacrifice, I have changed the status of this animal. It's now consecrated for God. If I accept a vow or an oath or any sort of commitment to do something or to refrain from doing something, I have now created a new mitzvah. And it's obligatory to me like all the other mitzvahs in the Torah. So words are very serious. There is a line in the Talmud that every small conversation that we have, we will be judged upon by the heavenly tribunal. There are accounts, there are accounts that tell us of people who had some sort of touch point with the heavenly system of judgment, either reliable sources that have told us in dreams and prophecies or in near-death experiences that the thing that's most surprising about how the system of judgment works in heaven is the seriousness and the gravity of words. And again, this is where I think the, the biggest discrepancy between how we view the world or how we are trained by default to view the world and how the world actually works is that words are very serious. And God forbid if there's hurtful words, it's treated very seriously. The Torah tells us someone who demeans, who ridicules, who causes pain with their words to the less fortunate, to the widow, to the orphan, that is grounds 
for, God forbid, their wife to become a widow and their children to be orphans. It's a capital offense. Words are very serious. So obviously we know that we should strive to use words, to use this incredible superpower for good, for mitzvos, for the agenda of the soul, for, for Torah, for prayer. And we should avoid, of course, any sinful use of words. But what about anything in the middle? Idle chit-chat. So, well, if it's not productive, can we say that it's okay? We're told that it should be limited. The Talmud, in fact, offers a debate about how severe idle chit-chat is. One opinion in the Talmud, in the book of Yoma, on page 19b, tells us that sichas chulin, chulin means mundane, mundane talk. It's a violation of the Torah. One say it's just, it's just the lack of fulfillment of a positive mitzvah, or it's a prohibition. So we're definitely not encouraging unnecessary talk. Nevertheless, we learn in our Mishnah that a little bit of chit-chat is actually good and beneficial. To talk to other people, to engage in small talk, to engage in some sort of friendly, cordial conversation, not only is it appropriate, it's even beneficial. So yes, our life, really, we're here on a mission we're in this corridor trying to get to Olam Abba and trying to amass and stockpile as many mitzvahs as possible to prepare for the eternal world. And therefore, we're supposed to dedicate our lives to things of eternal import, Torah, mitzvahs, etc., things that are consequential. But nevertheless, we have to engage with the people. We have to speak to them, not because it matters on some sort of existential level, but because this is what the Almighty wants of us, to be kind and caring and thoughtful towards other people, to be inquisitive about their lives, to always make sure that we greet people warmly, make sure other people feel validated and noticed. It's a subtle thing, but this is part of our mitzvah. Not only that, there is a risk of a person becoming so aloof and feeling so superior to others to not even need to speak to other people. When you speak to someone else and you listen to them, you learn and you're exposed to new perspectives and new opinions that may be different than yours. And that is a way of broadening your understanding of life and maybe increasing your empathy for other people. All the way back in chapter one of Perkyavos of the ethics of our fathers, we read about the imperative to greet every person with a pleasant countenance. The great rabbis, the great sages, the great heroes, they weren't people who just lived in a corner and avoided all contact with humanity. Abraham, he set up shop on the crossroads and he greeted everyone with great warmth. 
Abram didn't do things that were problematic, but he did engage in chit-chat. Why? To build a rapport, to build a connection with other people. That's part of our mitzvah, to speak to other people, to inquire about them, to make sure that they feel noticed and they, they feel valuable and they feel important. And therefore, even if there's words that are not so important, you know, they're, they're not a mitzvah per se on their own, we don't ignore any other person. And the Talmud tells us that the great sages, no one would ever preempt them in reading. They were aware, they were present, and they, even if they were walking in the marketplace and there was an idolater, they would greet them before the other person would greet them. And again, these are great sages who wouldn't do things that are against the Torah. But here we see that the Torah wants us to be a kind person, to be a friendly person, to be someone who is engaged with other people around us. A little bit of idle chit-chat. It's important. But there's a risk. It should be limited. If someone becomes too chatty and someone has what's known as a, a bull session to sit down and just talk about nonsense, if someone wastes time, time that can be used productively, that's a grand shame. We are here for a limited amount of time. And we have very important responsibilities. We have a lot of work to do. And we have to be very careful about how we spend our time. It's the only resource that doesn't really stale. It's the last area of scarcity in our lives. It's precious. There's no way to create more of it. And if you waste it by talking too much and just chatting, chatting, chatting about non, non, nothing and nonsense and futility, it's a big problem. Of course, if you just chat and chat and chat aimlessly, there's the risk of actually going into the realm of Lashon Hara. So you have to have a little bit of it, our sages are telling us, but not too much. When you are a person who's engaging with other people. You can build a bond with other people. You can share the human experience with other people. You can empathize with another person, understand their life. And certainly if you want to be an influence upon other people, it's critical to build rapport with others. Certainly even as parents. Your kids are into all sorts of things that you don't care about. But if you're not engaged with them, and you're not speaking to them on their level, and you don't care about what they care about, there's a distance between you and them. And if you want to influence them, they have to know that you care about them. And you have to give them the impression that if it's important to them, it's important to you. So you have to engage in a conversation 
with anyone that you want to have any impact upon. So there's another element of this idea. Idle chit-chat, it's not so idle if you're building a relationship with another person. It shows that you care about them. It shows that you love them. And that, of course, can deepen the relationship and can lead to other things. Silence, of course, is a virtue. All the way back again in chapter 1, one of the great sages told us that the best thing for our body is silence. When we're silent, we can learn. When we're silent, we can allow our thoughts to develop. When we're silent, we can be more humble. Our instinct, of course, is to always show how brilliant we are and to display our genius for everyone. But when you bite your tongue and you're silent, you're actually developing yourself in a a material way. And when you're silent, you can experience. You don't always have to speak. Allow ideas to percolate in your head. And even when you do speak, it's imperative, or there's certainly a benefit, to think and to sift your words. Think before you speak and sift them. The first rule is keep your mouth shut. The second rule is, okay, when you speak, make sure that you intend to say what you want to say. My grandfather, blessed memory, he excelled at this. One of his hallmarks was that he never blurted anything out. And even when his students came to him for advice, and if anyone asked him a question, never did he give a rapid-fire response, a knee-jerk response. Never. And of course, part of this is self-control. Let's say you know the answer. So again, the instinct is to just blurt it out. But if you're silent when you have what to say, that is an exercise in self-control. And certainly if you don't have what to say, engage your mind. Think about it before you respond. So he was always thoughtful before he responded. I got a chance recently to read some of my grandfather, a blessed memory's students' memoirs. And I read two incredible stories about when he revealed to some of his students a little bit of how he operated, a little bit of the mechanics of how he operated. And these stories really struck me. He had a conversation with one of his students about what is the relationship that someone has with a real teacher. We're told in the book of ethics that we have to acquire a teacher, assign for ourselves a teacher. What does it mean? So he told his student that many times in his life he has dilemmas 
real uncertainties. And he doesn't know what to do. Now, what do you do if you have a dilemma? You have an uncertainty. You have a decision to make. You are at an important crossroads in your life. What do you do? Of course, you could throw darts. But that's not the way we operate. So, of course, it made sense to ask ask for advice, right? That made sense. But before you ask for advice, you have to rigorously and thoroughly think through the question. Make a list of pros and cons for every variable and every element of the discussion to really work through the problem yourself. The Almighty gave you a brain. Use it. It's quite powerful. So my grandfather told a student, whenever he has a dilemma, he first works through all the variables in his head as best as he can. And he decides what he thinks is the right approach. And then he takes his solution and he puts it in a box. He puts it off to the side. And then he begins the identical process with the question or with the operating philosophy of what would my teacher say? This is already after his teacher, his primary teacher, the great Rabbi Yerucham, passed away. And he would think through the problem a second time, this time saying, okay, all these variables and all these angles and all these elements of the subject, what would my teacher say about this? And I would, so to speak, consult with him, he said. And I tried to arrive at a clear conclusion of what my teacher would say in this question, in this dilemma. And then I evaluate the two results. And if our results differ, I take the result that I had and I discard it and I go with the result that I came up with via this process of thinking of what my teacher would say. And the reason why I think this is pertinent to our, to our subject, this is all done in silence. This is how sometimes you, you process through a dilemma, a question. Not just to blurt it out and just blabber, blabber, and blabber, but to really rigorously think about it. And when you're talking, you're not thinking. A second story. My grandfather, a blessed memory, had many students. And they would come to him for advice on the dilemmas of their life. Not only that, he became renowned the world over as a good address, as a person that you can go to to help resolve your issues that you may have. So my grandfather would receive letters from all over the world from people dealing with real problems. And you would have visitors coming to his home, coming to the yeshiva, 
to sit down and address their dilemmas with him. And one time, something very unusual happened. Someone came with a crisis, with a problem. And instead of answering the problem, my grandfather, a bus of memory, outsourced it to one of his students. He tells his student, hey, there's this individual and he has this problem. I want you to address this problem. Now, of course, the student was very perplexed by that. He was wondering, like, why would, why would he send him to me? After all, he's the expert. I'm an, I'm an amateur. I'm a novice. Why is he presenting me this dilemma? So maybe this was a form of instruction. If you have a promising student, you want to get them a few good reps. But the, the questioner, it's not fair for them, for, for them to be given, you know, someone to practice. You, you don't want someone practicing on you, right? You don't want the barber who's just learning how to cut hair to cut your hair. It's not fair for that person. So the student asked the great sage, asked my grandfather of blessed memory. He says, why are you doing this? Why are you asking me to help this other person resolve their dilemma? And this answer, when he, when he answered to this question, it's such a fascinating idea because it really gets into the mechanics of a thinking person of someone who takes life very seriously. This is what he said. Let me explain to you. At my door, tens and dozens and hundreds of people come with their problems. And I am not a prophet. I don't have prophecy. So how how am I able to answer their problems? So you know, the way I would think, the answer is, well, you know, prophecy, but you have Torah, and Torah reshapes your mind, and it upgrades your intelligence, and it takes you from a human intelligence to a godly intelligence, and that's almost in effect a version of prophecy. That's what I would have said. That's not what he said. The way I address someone's dilemma is that I have in my mind, I have a ladder. And on that ladder, there are hundreds of rungs. And each rung is a story, is an episode of my own life. And if something happened to me, well, I know what happened and understand the variables, and understand what the repercussions are and what the consequences are. And if therefore, if, if there's a student or there's some someone coming to me with their problem, I scan all the stories of my life. I go up and down that ladder, those hundreds of rungs, and I try to find the rung, the episode of my life that it's appropriate that's the same sort of problem that this person has. And therefore, I'm able to know what to do because 
after all, I experienced a version of this same problem. And this particular individual, I stand and I stand and I stand, and I couldn't find the right sort of life experience that's a perfect match for their dilemma, and therefore I outsourced it to you. So to me, this was just a fascinating idea on, on two fronts. First of all, it, it, it shows maybe why he would take so long before he answered a problem. When you have a question, your mind right away jumps to a solution, whether it's accurate or not, it's well thought out or not. But if you are thinking through really your life and your experiences and trying to find and trying to find the the appropriate solution, well, that's that's done via some silence. But also, this I think is a product of real introspection. We're told that it's imperative to do some degree of introspection into our lives. Every day, we're told, you're supposed to stand through your day and think about what happened. And use it as a form of feedback to make sure that you're always improving yourself and refining yourself. The result of that is to really understand your life and to learn the lessons from your own life. And of course, if you learn the lessons from your life, now you have a very valuable takeaway that can guide you further and of course can be used to help guide others. This to me was, again, it's it's slightly off topic, but I was always wondering how come my grandfather, blessed memory, he would never respond right away. Never, ever, ever. And sometimes he would think for an uncomfortably long amount of time before responding. And then I read this and I said, okay, maybe this is the solution. But certainly he was an exemplar of someone who was not just engaging in any sort of idle chit-chat. And yes, he was friendly. And he was very warm to people. And he would inquire about them in a limited fashion. And that's our way to wisdom, way number 20. A little bit of conversation, a little bit of chit-chat, that is important. But don't get carried away. Now, what about chatting with your study partner? This is a special kind of conversation that is maybe underappreciated as to how severe it is. The Midrash tells us that Torah study is the greatest mitzvah. And parallel to that, abandoning Torah study, that is the gravest of sins. If you're studying with your study partner, and you start to neglect the Torah study to chat about something else, that's a real affront to the Almighty's Torah. I was joking recently how if anyone had the great privilege of studying in the yeshiva, they know exactly what I'm talking about. 
But if you're in yeshiva, you know, you're, you're expected to study four hours of Talmud. Multiple, in multiple stints throughout the day. Four hours in the morning, and four hours in the afternoon, and a couple hours at night. With a study partner, of course. Not just lectures, listening to lectures, but to study on your own, actively. And what happens is that when the, when the book of Talmud is open before you, the wellsprings of subjects to chat about, it just opens up. And the reason why is because the, the study of Torah is the gravest threat to the fiefdom of the Yitzhahara. Torah is the only antidote to the Yitzhahara. And therefore, there are more challenges, more obstacles placed before a person who wants to study Torah. And therefore, even someone who is not a great conversationalist, put a book of Talmud before them and suddenly they could chat for hours and hours and hours. This is the essential conflict in life. We have the Torah, which is pure goodness and pure will of God and is designed to entrench the dominion of God in a person's heart. And that's really where the Eight Sahara squats. And therefore, the conflict over Torah study is the essential conflict of life. And it's very difficult. And this is also part of our conversation. Yes, there is room for some degree of chit-chat, but we have to be very careful when it comes to Torah study. Now, the Chazonish used to say that it's very, very hard to get someone to study, you know, four hours of Talmud straight. And therefore, he says, it's okay to chat up to 10 minutes. Once you reach 10 minutes, that's when it gets really dangerous. And the commentaries bring our mission and they say, well, a little bit of conversation, that's actually beneficial and that could be applied even in the context of Torah study because if it's there to facilitate Torah study, if it's there to kind of help a person decompress a little bit, then that's okay. And in fact, the Talmud tells us the great sages would open up their lectures. And this is going back 2,000 years almost. In the times of the Talmud, the great sages would open up their lectures with a joke. Not to be too serious. This goes to the great Jewish tradition of humor. The great sages would open up their lecture with something a little bit less serious. And of course, eventually they would get there that's a way to kind of ease people into it. And this is the balance that this way to wisdom is trying to strike. If someone engages in too much chit-chat, too much conversation, it's really, it's really harmful. Because if you begin to focus your life on things that are nonsense, things that are immaterial, that's a, that's a big mistake. It's a big misappropriation of your time and your energies and your resources. But if someone has nothing, if someone is 
only serious all the time, there's also a problem. They get disconnected from the real world. They get disconnected from other people. And in truth, it can actually be harmful to their pursuit of Torah. Torah is the Almighty's wisdom overlaid upon our world. And if a person has no connection with the world, they're a monk, they're an ascetic living a life that is withdrawn from the world, that will ultimately result in ignorance in Torah as well. Even the Nazir, the Nazir, who lives an ascetic life, that's supposed to be for 30 days, a little dose of it, and then come back to reality. This is way number 20. Bemiut sicha, with limited idle conversation and chit-chat, limited but not eliminated a little bit, is actually helpful and productive.